Will you take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at one verse this morning, but it will take us to many sections of the Scripture as we think about the sufficiency of the cross. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is the Word of God. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ also died for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. I find it very, very interesting. In fact, questioning every time I see it. How many people wear the cross around their necks or in their ears or whatever other place they put the cross? Madonna wears a cross. I can go on with Hollywood names that wear a cross. Yet, if they understood what the meaning of the cross was all about, I don't think they would be wearing it. Because a cross is a symbol of disgrace. The cross belongs to criminals. The cross belongs to those who are cursed. Uh, uh, Listen, listen to a little bit of the history of the cross. Cicero, the Roman emperor, says, Roman citizens are exempt from crucifixion, except in extreme cases of treason. He says, the cross is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. It is to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog a Roman citizen is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him? What can I say? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe the horrid deed of the cross. The very word cross should be far removed not only from a person of Roman citizenship, but from his thoughts altogether, from his eyes and from his ears. For it is not only the cruel occurrence of of, of these things, the procedure of crucifixion or the endurance of them, but the liability of them, the expectation, indeed the mere mention of them, that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and of a free man. The cross, what can I say, says Cicero. I can't think, I don't want it to be in my thoughts, I don't want it to be in my mind. Yet, for the Christian, the cross is the center of everything, past, present, future. Peter is writing to people who are suffering. 
severe suffering under Nero. And Peter wants to give them a sense of how they could endure the suffering they were going through as they were at the time. And, and you would think that he would, he would probably find a psalm like Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Or some other psalm that gives us a little bit of comfort. But instead of that, he points to the cross. He says, even Christ suffered. But he wants us to see that the sufferings of Christ has significance for what they were going through at the time. And as we come to the table again and again and again and again, I wonder if we understand the significance of what it means to come to the communion table. For the issues of the days, the day that we face, issues of every kind. And may I say that, that you cannot find an issue in the world today, contemporary, uh, the world we're living in, that you will not find in the Bible. That, that is why the writer said there's nothing new under the sun, or as Malcolm Mugridge puts it, that old things are just new things done to new people in new ways. But listen, Peter is saying that if we can understand the meaning of the cross, what it is all about, it would help us to deal with issues that we're dealing with. So that's what I want for the next few minutes to share. What is the meaning of the cross? If it has such despicable expressions and concerns in the minds of, of, of emperors, if it has such beautiful emblems in the minds of Hollywood people and other people, how do we as Christians understand the cross? How do we respond to that piece of wood, crossbar, that we call the cross? What was the issue? Why was Christ there? Because remember that when, when Cicero was, was speaking, he was speaking not so much of the cross that Jesus bore. He was talking about the cross as, as, as a symbol of punishment throughout that, that then world. But when Jesus was on the cross, there was something more than a piece of wood taking place. He was dealing with an issue that, that had to do with the response of God. Listen, listen to what he says. Christ also died. Now, now, why would he have to die? What did he do? Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. He could look into the faces of his contemporaries and say, which of you can convince me of sin? Let me, let me suggest to you what is taking place here. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, we read these words. He was smitten. Smitten. Translated, he was slaughtered. Verse 4. Verse 5. He was wounded. The word is that he was pierced. So, so here, here, is, here is a man. There are two other crosses. But the man in the middle is, in, is in enduring something 
that is seen but not understood. Nobody understood why he was there. Why is this man, why is this center cross so significant? Because it has to do not simply with what was happening in Jerusalem that day, but it has to do, my friends, with what happened in a garden centuries before. The promise was made that the Messiah would come. That the Messiah was going to do something about the tear, the chasm that had existed for centuries between God and his creation. And, and what was the problem? Why was he there? Listen to what Isaiah says again. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced through for our iniquities. So the issue on the cross was not what we could see. The issue on the cross was, was God's response to man's rebellion called sin. And his rebellion didn't have to do with outward expressions of negative feelings to God, but an inward rebellion that he did not need a God. That he could live his life the way he wants it, the way she wants it. It had to do with the fact that, that when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. And no man can live in that state of mind where he ignores the source of his life and continues without consequences. Sin. It's not a nice word, is it? It's not a word that you and I like to think about in the year 2012. Several years ago, Dr. O.H. Mower, who at the time was the president of the American Psychiatric Association, or psych, a Psychological Association, Association, a brilliant scholar at Yale and Harvard, one of the very best in his field. Yet he was dealing with human problems, neurosis, psychosis, emotional problems, and Dr. Moore said this, I quote, For several decades, we psychologists looked upon the whole matter of sin. Now, he's not a Christian. Please remember this. For several decades, we psychologists looked upon the whole matter of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus. That is, Something evil and oppressive. Don't talk about sin. We have, we have been liberated from that kind of situation. And we have acclaimed our liberation from that whole idea of sin. We have celebrated the fact that we have arrived at a place in our history where we no longer need to think about human behavior as having a cause that God has to be answered to. He went on to say, but our liberation has not led us to freedom. That to be free in this sense, that is, to have an excuse of being sick rather than sinful, is to court the danger also of becoming lost. 
The danger is, I believe, I'd be token by widespread interest in existentialism. Now, what I do, what I want, when I want it, which we are presently witnessing, listen now, in becoming amoral, ethically neutral and free, we have cut the very roots of our being lost, our deepest sense of selfhood and identity, and with, this is a psychologist talking, with neurotics themselves, we find ourselves asking, who am I and what is my deepest destiny? What does it mean to be alive? I thought of that. Malcolm Mudwood puts it this way, that the most debatable philosophy of psychologists and philosophers is the depravity of man. But it's the most provable. Did you see those middle school students this past week in New York with that woman on the bus? Did you see those little kids? This woman was, was there to protect them. And they made such a tool of her. Middle school kids. They're right now up for being dismissed for, from school for the next year because of their behavior. They taunt her. They had to bleep out words. This is the bus going, and someone was taking picture of this on the school bus while it was going on. You may not have heard of it, friends. But in Montreal, two weeks ago, a young man living with another young man mutilated his roommates to bits, to pieces, and sent parts of the body to political leaders in Canada and two parts of the body to a school in British Columbia. What is wrong with us? What would cause someone to do something like that? The scripture says, my friends, that Jesus was dealing with what is wrong with us. He died for sins. And if we, if we actually move that word from our language, we have no explanation for what's happening in our world, whether in a school bus or in a room in Montreal. And I can go on with different places. What's the, what's the issue on the cross the issue on the cross is what the Bible calls sin and what Dr. Moore calls sin. And by the way, Dr. Moore, after he wrote that article, he got so many hate letters from fellow psychiatrists and psychologists because he used the word sin and he ended up committing suicide. The issue, when we have no answer at all, and what is taking place? The Bible answers. The reason he was on the cross was because God was taking care of matters that had caused the downfall of the human race. Well, let's look at the impeccability of the cross. <laughs> Letha called me, she said, how do you spell that word? 
You sure that's the word you want? I said, yes, I'm sure that's the word that I want. Listen to what the text says. In your text it says Jesus died once for all. In, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the language of the Bible, listen to what it says. Jesus died once. Once. Because you see, his death was impeccable. It was perfect. It was complete. Here's what it means. When I say that his death on the cross is impeccable, I mean that when he was there over 2,000 years ago, the cross was valid then. In the 4th century, the cross was valid then. In the 10th century, the cross was valid then. He didn't need to die again and again. He died once. It was complete. It was finished. And no matter what century you and I live in, that cross will always answer to the human condition. It will deal with a young man up in Canada. It will deal with students on a bus. It will deal with whoever is suffering from the consequences of separation from God. The cross, says Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14, he died once. He never needs to do it again. When he died, as someone said, he didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. The mission to take care of what's wrong with the human race has been accomplished. And so God was pleased in heaven, says Isaiah 53, 12. It pleased the Father to bruise him because by piercing him, by bruising him, it meant that the world was being reconciled back to God by way of the cross. But there's another meaning to that. He died once for all, and this is what some of the translators were trying to bring out, that Jesus did not die for a certain segment of humanity. For, for, for the rich and not for the poor. For the educated and not the uneducated. He died once for all. Nicodemus is going to become a believer by trusting in Jesus. The thief on the cross is going to become a believer in the very same way. There's not two saviors or three saviors or four saviors for the different kinds of sins that people commit. There are people who have never murdered. Most of us in here, none of us as far as I know, has. But we are here this morning because we know we're sinners. We're here this morning because we know that something was wrong with us. I mentioned just briefly again, you know, my... Once I turned 14, I, I had nothing to do with the church again. I was brought up in a certain denomination where I never heard anything about the gospel, about the cross. But yet there was something in my, in my chest saying, if, if you would die tonight, do you know your destiny? You see, if, 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 if death puts an end to existence then, my friends, this is a waste of time. If death put a name to existence, 
what does, it, what does the scripture say? We may as well eat, drink, and be merry. Because this is all there is. But Luke chapter 16 says, no, this is not all there is. There is a tomorrow after the grave. We're studying that in, on Wednesday nights, talking about the rapture. There's coming a time when all that are in the grave will hear his voice when he calls his own to come and they will hear him because they have been to the cross. It's impeccable. You know, every, every Easter you find people all over the world walking with crosses and lashing themselves and trying to compensate for the awareness of guilt they feel. My friends, it's too late. It's already been done. It's complete. It's finished. It's impeccable. So if you make much of the cross, you're not making much of a piece of wood. You're making much of what God was doing on the cross. That's why his son cried out. Because the issue was our separation from God. Briefly, let me get to the ministry from the cross. What was taking place on the cross? Listen to what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3. Christ also died or suffered the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. Three things were taking place that from this text we're told. One, the dignity of Jesus was under scrutiny. He was not there because of anything he had done. He was the just one, the righteous one. No creature has the same character as Christ. No soul, no soul is like his soul, not even in heaven. He was the just one. By just it means that he had nothing wrong with himself. There was never a time in the life of Christ when secretly he desired to go contrary to the will of God. Never a time. So when he was on the cross, we're told in Hebrews 9, 14, he offered himself to God as a sacrifice. He offered himself. The other two thieves could never offer themselves. Paul could never offer himself. Peter could never offer himself. The only being who could offer himself as an offering to God for God's wrath to be satisfied was his own son. No other one could do that. The hymn writer puts it in another way. There was no other good enough to pay the price for sin. He only could have unlocked the gate of heaven to let us in. The dignity of Jesus. Why we love him? Because God could never refuse perfection. You've got to be just like God to be able for God to respond and receive you. And the only person that fit that bill was Jesus. No one else. 
at the funeral on Friday, Randy's father-in-law, one of the gentlemen that got up to give a testimony about Leon, I, I smiled when he said it because I knew exactly what he meant. He said, I have known Leon for, and he, I think he said 30 years, and then he said, I've never heard him utter one unkind word. Interesting thought, isn't it? But you ask him if he needed a savior and listen to what he would say. Because he may not have been heard, but he knew that unkind thoughts occupied his mind, occupied his thoughts. And every time, because he had been to the cross, every time he was dealing with some unkindness, he would go to the cross. Because at the cross, Christ dealt with our unkindness. So we don't have to be unkind. The dignity, it is, it is his life now that we live. I'm crucified with Christ, says the apostle. And I live yet not I, but the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. While on the cross, Jesus answered to God. And we are here this morning. We have taken the cup, we have taken the bread, so that we will not have to answer to God. Jesus did it all. He alone could do it. The dignity of Jesus is speaking of his character. Secondly, the dejection of Jesus the dejection of Jesus. The just for the unjust. For. The word for means someone who was in the place of another. And, and, and for whose sin was he there? Ladies and gentlemen, I will be personal. Mine. Mine. You answer for yourself. I know I, 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 I have had to come to him because I could do nothing about the sense of guilt, the sense of being wrong, the, the, the sense that something is wrong, not with the world, but something is wrong with me. And I soon found out from the scriptures that what is wrong is that I was born with a disposition that hates God and God did everything to make sure that I am able to come back to him and call him daddy. I am the unjust one. He was wounded for my transgression. So the hymn writer caught the sense of this guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless son of God was he. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. That's why we love him. He wasn't there because of anything he had done. He was there because I did it all. <laughs> Talking to one of my sisters yesterday, it was her birthday and I, I had forgotten. I always try to get cards to my sisters and my brother as soon as the month of their birth comes. And I had not forgotten. I just got busy. And soon I realized that it was after... <laughs> It happened a week ago Saturday. So I decided to call one week later. And, and we were talking. And we were sharing. 
and, and we were remembering our youth and how each of us from that point has come to trust in Jesus and what he means to us. And we have something more than the genes of our father and our mother. We have the identification of our relationship with Jesus Christ because we have trusted in the work of the cross so that they are more my blood, more than my blood. They're more than my mother's children. They are part of the family of God. We were all a part of the unjust. And I, I, we, we, we didn't want to talk about all that, that we did, <laughs> uh, that I did. Perhaps they remember more that, of what I did and what they did. I was a terror to my mother. But oh, how my life was transformed that Good Friday morning when Jesus Christ became my Savior, the just for the unjust. Lastly, our destiny through Jesus. Listen to what Peter says. For Christ also died, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Here, my friends, is something that is just out of this world. When we received Christ, when we trusted in his blood because of his work on the cross, what he was doing on the cross was opening the way for you and I to live a guilt-free life. This is what the Bible teaches. A guilt-free life means that I am living my life in the light of God's holiness, God's perfection, God's law. As someone said, Christians are not perfect, they're only forgiven. And that's what it is. So we read in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I can stand before God at any time, trusting in his son, and I can say without embarrassment, without question, I am free. I am free. I am free. Because Jesus died and he opened the way for God to reconcile me to himself and for God to be reconciled to me. So Jesus brings us when we are saved, wherever that may, may, may be. He, he takes us right to his father and he introduces us to his father and he, he, as it were, would say to his father, I have brought him because you have given him to me, her to me, and he or she is now in me. And Peter and Paul says, we are accepted in the beloved before God. I hope that means something to you, friends. Presently, we stand before God. We live for God. We love God. But there is more. And I won't even try to get into it. I want you to go to the book of Revelation in closing. Chapter 21. Revelation 21 and verse 3. Jesus died that he might bring us to God. I said earlier 
that the communion has to do with the past, we remember. The communion has to do with the present, we take. The communion has to do with the future until he comes. So, the past, the present, in prayer we go before God. As we are this morning, here we are before God. But my friends, there is more. Look at Revelation 21 verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. That is humanity, redeemed humanity. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. Jesus died so that God can be among us and like Adam and Eve in the pre-sinning stage, we will not be ashamed. We will not be afraid. We will have no reason to be embarrassed. Listen, while we are here, we call him our father. But in a day to come when we are there, he will call us, call us his children. God won't be embarrassed to call you and me. As I heard Don Carson saying this morning, that in heaven we will never have to confess sins. In heaven we'll never have to, have to ask one another to forgive. Because when we are there, we will be where sin does not exist. God himself, Jesus died. And the, the, the cross had significance for life here by faith. But the cross has significance for life there by sight. And when we stand before him, we'll have no reason to be ashamed because in the words of the hymn, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed them white as snow. It is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that we learn of the supreme character of God and his amazing grace to man. Let us pray. Oh God, I pray that the cross will become more meaningful to us, not the piece of wood, but that ministry that took place there. We learn of the utter perfection of the character of Christ, sinless. We learn of our desperate need of him. We are sinful. But, oh God, we thank you for the effectiveness of the cross. He brings us to God. Help us to live in the light of that, not only today, but every day, until God himself calls us his children in eternity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.